Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Mind Hunter Companion. Uh, we are going to be doing season one, episode six today. Uh, Peter is my co-host, and I am Doug. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, so we are doing uh, episode six, uh, which is uh, coincidentally titled "Episode Six." Um, <laughs> this was uh, um, directed by Tobias Lindholm and written by uh, well, Joe Penhall gets a story credit, uh, and the teleplay is by Joe Penhall and Tobias Lindholm. Um, should we just jump right in? Yeah, so we get a little creepy knot making in the beginning by the yeah. BTK killer. <laughs> you know, by the way, just before we go any further, I just I guess one comment I'll say is I, I think that for me, Asif Kapadia uh, was not the director. I feel like episode five and six, now that we've sort of gotten away from him and back towards other directors, I think I feel like these episodes are a little bit better paced and a little uh, more to my liking. So yeah, so we begin with Dennis Rader, our BTK killer. Um, he's working on the B part. <laughs> Practice so, uh, makes perfect. Yeah, he's sitting in his house with his wife and his kid, and he is very intently practicing knot tying while they watch TV. You know, I think that this might be the best little intro we've had because it does the most with the least. Yep, it is definitely creepy. It's you know, even more creepy just than sitting him. on his couch playing with a piece of string. <laughs> right. I mean, it's creepier than when he's running around, like stalking around that woman's house as the ADT dude. Like this right. is pretty No, creepy. for sure. Um, and then we shift gears uh, to Quantico and we see Shepard, uh, much to her surprise, offers Wendy Carr a permanent job, but she is not expecting the offer. And very importantly, he inquires as to her marital status. Right. And, um, you know, the, they've started to kind of ramp up people asking Wendy about her personal life um, a little bit. And that's more so in this episode. And this is the first episode where we get to see anything about her besides her um, academic interests. Right. And she's, she's, you know, she's a little cool, a little chilly interpersonally, even, for example, when she went out on her date with Holden and Debbie. She's, she's reserved. She's always reserved. And she, specifically, she's reserved about anything personal. She'll speak at length about um, serial killers and their sexual fantasies and all sorts of things that generally would be considered uncomfortable. Um, but if you ask her like, um, Hey, how about them Red Sox? Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, she's not, got nothing. she'll shut you right down. <clears throat> yeah. She's got nothing. Or, or what'd you do last night? Right. You know, she's not going to answer that question either. Yeah. She, she, um, well, she doesn't, she actively, uh, you know, deflects, uh, you know, like she said, you know, she'll say something that's sort of hostile and analytical. Like, you know, you, you do you like uh, small talk, relax you, you know, do, is that the way you get rid of your anxiety? You know, that what she says, uh, I think in, in this episode, I think she says that. Um, and uh, right. So, so we don't, we're going to see more about her in a minute in the episode. 
but she's clearly kind of surprised to get a, a formal offer, even though she's sort of been spending apparently more effort and has become more and more interested over time at uh, with the project they're they're working on. Well, and you know she's seeing the value of it more and more, and you could tell that <clears throat> even though she's not expecting the offer, she suddenly has to take it very seriously. Um, right. We then cut to, uh, we're back in Altoona with Benji, right? Benji has now been arrested, right? And he's now in police custody and Benji holding Miller and back, in Alt, and back in Altoona. Benji and, and Frank. Ask, right. They ask him, why? Why did you do it? And Benji says, it was Frank, which Frank denies. By the way, I'm not sure. You know, the feds don't really... It's not a federal crime, so I, I I think it's kind of a stretch to have the feds, you know, interrogating them about a, um, you know, a, a local, um, prosecution, right? Local right. justice. Although although they, they do just kind advise. of run into their limits, right? They run into the limits uh, of their, I guess, their authority, right, in terms of their interactions with the DA coming up, right? Right. So they go back and forth with Benji and Frank. Benji says uh, she fucked Frank. Frank denies this. Benji says she was dead when she got stabbed. Right. And it's really unclear what happened. They, they clearly are sort of intertwined in the event and they were both there. And you get the distinct impression that no one is telling the full truth. Like no one is actually giving an expository on, on the actual events and how they transcribe. People are just sort of answering <clears throat> questions that are put to them in a very limited way, which doesn't really paint a picture. They're both quite reticent, even under pretty heated um, interrogation. And then they, they bring the tape back of their interactions in Altoona to Wendy. And uh, she listens to Rose, right? And then and, and and Wendy recognizes that Rose was there, right? Because she because uses she the present tense, uh, right? She uses splashing, splashing, right? Right to acknowledge that she saw some sort of act of violence against uh, Beverly in person. I thought it was kind of interesting how there's, you know. Uh, Rose, Frank, and Benji are sort of paralleled by Wendy Holden and Bill. It's sort of two men and a woman in league, right? They're sort of against each other. Like they're, everyone's got an opposite number in this puzzle as they try to figure out exactly what happened uh, to Beverly Jean. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm coughing there. And then um, we have a, an interesting dinner at the Tenches, which I think is this might be the best scene in the episode. Like, I kind of want to go to the tent yeah. just for dinner, to be totally honest. Especially if, if um, Bill's wife mixes up some martinis. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they drank as much as they ate. <laughs> She's apparently pretty good at it. Um, and we get to meet uh, Brian in a little bit more detail. And uh, Holden, you know, Holden kind of tries to, to interact with Brian. Uh, Bill is Bill's kid. You know, in a pretty uh, direct way. You know, he sits on the floor next to him with his legs crossed, and he talks about the Lincoln Logs. Yeah, um, he tries. Yeah. yeah, it's a good scene. You know, and and uh, and Bill is, you know, Bill is sitting on a chair a little bit more distant, 
Yeah, um, kids clearly, you know, every, now that autism is so well known, I mean, the, the kid is even from somebody who's clueless like me, you can, it's obvious that the, the kid's intended to have autism. Right. Although very little is known about it back then. Right. Right. That's exactly. Um, and there's a, a nice scene where um, Bill's wife, what's Bill's wife's name again? I don't remember. But we're, we're, I think it's Nancy. Yeah, we're, we're Nancy and uh, Debbie are talking in the kitchen and she sort of acknowledges how she's worried about their son. And then that sort of segues to uh, Bill and Holden talking about their fathers. And Bill says that his, his father didn't even talk to him. And Bill makes a really interesting statement. Like he basically says that all fathers are absentee fathers. Right. It's in the setting of, you know, Bill basically saying like, my dad wasn't so great and I was... So sort of, you know, I clearly had, um, there was distance, you know, my father was reserved, he was absent and I'm, I'm not a serial killer. Um, right. Which is right. Exactly. And that very much fits with Bill's life view. Like, you know, you, you take what you get, you know, you, you get some good days and some bad days and some shit days, but you know, you don't, you don't cut up a prostitute down at the, you know, flying J truck stop in response. Right. You know, you have a couple fingers of rye and a cigarette and go back to work. <laughs> and a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's later, hopefully. Right. right. It all builds up. <laughs> um, you know, they do a great bit where there's a, the scene ends with, um, you know, Bill and Holden just sort of sitting quietly looking at each other. And then it cuts to Quantico. Uh, and the soundtrack is rapid gunfire just to sort of like jolt you out of the domesticity of the, the Tench household and let you know that you're back at Quantico and the show is back where we're going. Yeah. And we cut to uh, Altoona. It's just a little good Foley work right there, more yeah. or less. And we cut to Altoona and then we find out that the district attorney has decided to go after Benji first. Um, and, right. And, and Wendy, Wendy's theory is that Frank pushed Benji to do it. And Wendy, kind of uh, in a big scene for her, you know, they bring her up to Altoona and she spins a big story for the DA who appears to buy it. But he's a little of, resist. I mean, he's arguing with them. He's saying, like, I have to convince a jury of, you know, these are these are speculation. These are pretty, how am I going to prove that? He says to them, or like, how's somebody going to understand that? Right. And it's a great theory and it makes a lot of sense, but he, but the DA himself buys it. Like he, he's like, okay, I'm with you. I get it. I can remember his exact words, but he acknowledges like, yep, that's a great idea. That's a great way to put it. But he's sort of yesing them too, because he knows that, you know, he, they're passionate about it. And, and he, he probably has, you know, God knows how many cases the guy's trying um you know <laughs> right although this is probably one of his few capital murder cases in altoona right but you know again then again this is it's i just like, like saying altoona by the way right but it's not just one town you know this is some county that probably has uh, i'm sure it has multiple hundreds of thousands of, of people in it right and um he he's the da for this this county so, you know, I'm sure the guy's busy. I, I, I doubt there's a DA in the United States who's not busy. Um, and, you know, not only is he elected, but he, as he says to them in a minute, you know, we have to achieve the highest quality of justice at the, at the best cost, the lowest cost. 
and um and and car when they're driving away is a little skeptical that he truly bought it yeah and, and it's and it gets to the point that they talk about explicitly later on like they worry that if they can't convey their theories and their ideas and they can't put them into practice in a bigger scale Right, and that that comes back to haunt them more in the second half of the episode. Right, so what's the point exactly? Right, as they're leaving, uh, you know, uh, Holden explicitly talks with Wendy about the commute to Boston, and then we see for the big reveal Wendy back in Boston, which is by the way, she goes not from the airport home; she goes from the airport to her office, which is pretty impressive. Or she, well, to her girlfriend's office, right? Exactly. And then we see for the big, for the first time, uh, we see two things. One is we see her partner, and two, for the first time in the show, we see Wendy smile, which I thought was really interesting. And again, right. I mean, I think they telegraphed this you know, pretty far and clear away. But I, I mean, I think everybody kind of knew that this was coming, but it's interesting the way that they do it. And her partner, I don't know, I don't remember if the partner had a name, but, uh, uh her, Star, her, says, her, but her partner that comes off as kind of an asshole. Yeah. She's a little rough, huh? She's a little well, uh, patronizing, I would say. Well, of, of everything. So they go out to dinner with uh, an, a pair of like-minded intellectuals. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, her partner says to Wendy explicitly that she's, she's wasting her time, right? You're up for tenure. You can't, you can't be, you know, wasting your time with these FBI guys. She explicitly says that, you know, they're not intellectuals. Your work doesn't have practical value. They can't understand you. I mean, she she really kind of, over the course of two scenes in a row, one in her office and one when they're in the restaurant with the other couple, like she manages to sort of put Wendy and her work and her FBI colleagues down pretty harshly. Right. And, and Wendy's response is, well, they're actually... More, she says in so many words. Actually, they're they're much more sophisticated and brighter than you think, and they're they're far, you're underestimating them tremendously. And that falls on deaf ears, right? And it's basically uh, it's it's a theme because the feds don't trust um, anybody in academia, and everybody in academia, as we've seen before, when when Holden went to UVA to try to talk to people and take classes. Um, they're incredibly suspicious of him and they don't, that both of them are, are, are set in their, their preconceived notions. And I'm sure there's, there's truth to the preconceived notions of, for both of them. But what's interesting is that, you know, the feds, or at least some of the feds, notably Shepard, who's their boss, right? He's a, he's a Bill and Holden's boss. Um, who's sort of a complex character, right? Because uh, he, he, his positions do change over time and he, he is concerned with what works, even though he has his own view, sort of uh, intellectual or, or limitations in, in viewpoint or scope. But he, I think, independently kind of realized how valuable uh, Wendy is when he offers her the job. I mean, he realizes... Shepherd. Um, yeah, Shepard realizes that Wendy is valuable to the to the organization and to the, what their their operation is. Before, you know, um, he, he's the first one to realize it, even though he's, I guess, 
part of the feds and they have their limitations, but the, the feds realize the value of an academic faster than an academic realizes the value of the feds. And part of that might be just that Wendy is, she can't say a word about any of this to almost well, anybody. And I love the way in, in one of the, I think a really good bit of writing you know, her partner says to her, because, you know, she's she brings up maybe moving down to Quantico full time and, you know, they get into this whole tiff. And and the the under the undercurrent of of the argument with Wendy's partner is that the partner is being selfish. He just wants Wendy there with her. And then she points out that, look, if you went down there, you'd have to live a double life. Right. You couldn't yeah. tell them that you're gay. And then Wendy responds, I'm already living a double life. Yeah. Like I'm I'm half here and I'm half there and I'm neither. I'm in, I'm neither in one place enough as much as I should be. So I thought that was actually writing wise, a really, really good exchange. And, and then Wendy walks out of the dinner, like she just sort of gets up and leaves. Yeah. I think Wendy is sort of is right on the edge of accepting. I think she's realized that, that the work she's doing with the FBI is more important at this point than her day job, so to speak. Well, and maybe, you know, it's it's nice to see concrete results, right? Whereas everything up in Boston is abstract and papers and writing and classroom, you know, whereas at Quantico, she's dealing with real killers, right? She went to Altoona. Yeah. And, right? she's and maybe very, that changed her mind. Yeah. And she's basically a very thin line removed out of the interview room. She can, she's basically as if she were there with her eyes closed, you know, because she's listening to the tapes of the actual exchanges. So she's almost right there with the killers. Um, and, and, and the whole thing is compelling in many, many levels. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, it's exciting and compelling is a really good word for it. And it's immediate, right? Yeah. These are ongoing real cases where she can have a concrete impact on an actual live criminal case. Right. She can, she can test her, ability to understand psychopathology maybe maybe this is too sort of analytical a view but she could test her ability to understand uh the psychopathology of these criminals in a, in a way that's so uh, it's a true stress test because she can use her knowledge to catch them she can use her knowledge to predict what they're going to do and catch them as opposed to theorize about them Right. And, and she can also feel like she's helping women, right? Either yeah. the women who are the victims or the women who would have been the victims of the future crimes. And maybe she'd be able to prevent in, at some point in future, maybe doing this would prevent some people from turning into, um, you know, serial killers, maybe be able to interrupt something early on. I think she just sees there are many, there's a lot of potential and she sees that this is truly something new. Whereas maybe two thirds of your, of your glances backward in academia, where you're looking at, at your, at the predecessors you're looking at the, the, the literature and the history of work in your field or your subfield. Um, and then there's, you build on that incrementally here. She's really out. She's out in the field. It's, t she's out in it's looking forward. Right. She's it's entirely, out of the classroom, so to speak. It's entirely forward looking. And, so we shift, we shift from Wendy walking out of the dinner where she's been uh, insulted and demeaned, both directly and indirectly, 
back to Altoona, where we find out that Benji has pled to murder in the third degree. And the DA, who was very positive with uh, Holden and Wendy, now disagrees. And he doesn't think that he's going to get better than what he has. Uh, Frank tells them where Beverly's breasts are to be found. Right, Barry. They feel, like they, have, they feel like they have a really good case, and they're going to they're gonna convict all three of them. The DA is proud. He even his, his exact words is he says, Benji will fry, he says. Yeah, and Frank's going to get five to 25 years. Uh, in, it's like sort of, I think he makes a plea for, it's like, um, you know, mental, it's uh, compa- forced, um, you know, uh, psychiatric incarceration or whatever, rather than. Right. So, so Frank gets sort of a lighter, sentence whereas they they're very annoyed because they feel that frank if, if anything frank's the closest thing to the serial killer and they see frank in the hallway in his jumpsuit and his cuffs and they have a little wordless exchange where they just sort of look at each other right but then the the da sort of he quits his himself in well he defends his viewpoint well in a very brief like a one minute exchange on the courthouse steps um <laughs> You know, when he, he, they're very annoyed and he says to them, like, you know, we have, this is, you have to realize that we have to convince a jury. And that's when he delivers the line about cost, about cost effective justice also. Right. Yeah. They're, you could tell like they're, they're kind of mixed because on the one hand, they feel like they helped them make arrests and they, they got the right people, but the story isn't adding up for them and they're not sure that they, are comfortable with how the police are proceeding with the prosecutions and the pleas and the, and the whole thing. Right. And they, they explicitly say to each other, like, maybe we can't communicate this to the people who matter. Like they suddenly have a new worry that they didn't have before. They can't just figure this stuff out. They've got to be able to convey it to others who need it. Yeah. I think they, they understand, they, they understand that the DA maybe they're annoyed at the DA and maybe initially they just want to blame it on him and that it's just, he's being lazy or it's some fault in his, his abilities or, or, you know, it's simply him, but he quits himself personally very well. And I think they realize that the problem is systematic. It's not because the DA, the DA was working the best way he could within the system and that they have a bigger problem and that's systematically, they need to be able to speak, they need to be able to instruct law enforcement and perhaps the public beyond law enforcement, but certainly law enforcement, the law enforcement community well enough that they're familiar with with uh, the ground that, that they're working on. You know, the, the ground of this, this kind of aberrant um, pathological serial type murder. And then the the episode wraps kind of abruptly. Like this is a shorter episode, like you were saying. Uh, we have a little bit of a preview of the next episode where they're getting ready to interview Jerome Brudos, who's the king of souvenirs from what he took from uh, his victims. And then Wendy pushes, again, very hard for them to use the questionnaire, which which she's kind of been fighting with them about for a while now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
she when he finishes the episode by really doing two things that show that she's made up her mind. One is she takes an office in the basement, right? Which you know gets Holden and Bill to turn their heads, like hmm. yeah. And then uh, she decides to get a furnished apartment, like she's moving down, like she's picking Holden and Bill over her partner Annalise and her academic life. Yeah, she clearly dumped the old girl. And uh, and plus she has, I mean, who could resist that stylish 70s graphic? <laughs> you know, the worst part was I kind of liked it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you could see how all of Annalise's attempts to sway her just pushed her away. Yeah, she was Annalise close to- never thought what was best for Wendy, what would make Wendy happy. She was really just thinking about herself. And she kind of <sighs> used pressure on Wendy, like, don't throw away your career, your tenure, blah, blah, blah. Right. So it's interesting that that's how the episode ends. Although I won't lie to you, that apartment looked good. And they have singles events if you're into that sort of thing. Right. Well, she will be now, maybe. Depends on what <laughs> kind of singles events we're talking about. <laughs> I, I like this episode uh, quite a lot. I like the way that it's, it's, it's well-paced. Like, it moves quickly. They're back and forth to Altoona. They're in Boston. Like, you're in Shepard's office. Like, a lot happens in a relatively short period of time. And I thought that this was... Uh, really really a well uh, done episode tobias lindholm who directed this is a danish screenwriter known for um uh, what wikipedia describes as gritty moral dramas although i won't lie to you i don't think i've seen anything else that he has done considering that everything else he's done appears to be in dutch um how's your dutch i'm sure it's danish but yeah no the um let's see um i think some of this stuff no i don't if it's been on netflix i might have seen it because i i watch like an inordinate amount of foreign sourced you know netflix material but um because a lot of it netflix gets it cheap and it's pretty good uh at least when it as long as it's not there's not a picture of an assault rifle or a guy holding an assault rifle on the on the little icon because the <laughs> you can basically tell on Netflix which ones those are just kind of red meat uh there's nothing wrong with them they're just kind of they're all the same and but the the other ones that they get that are um you know usually actually they're they're not just european they're from all over the place but they source um foreign uh dramas from all over the place yeah, um, and, and put them on, which is nice because they used to sort of dribble in on PBS back in the day, right? But now it, there's like this, this like a veritable river of like you know foreign stuff on uh, on Netflix. That's a lot of it's good. Yeah, well, and they, I mean, look, I mean, they this guy definitely did a good job. Like they pulled him in, and he did this thing, and he did he did well. Yeah, it's very nice. It's very well paced, as you said. It's very, very brisk and tightly put together. Although I did not dislike episode four nearly as much as you did. Yeah, I, I think those two episodes by Capadia just slowed, slowed, really slowed me down. So, but anyway, yeah. but I'm glad that uh, we're on to other other directors to explore. Um, you know, it's funny because in this episode, you know, uh, there's no big dramatic moments in terms of. Action, right there's no car crash there's no intense interviews with killers in the jail but through right. a, a lot of smaller scenes and a lot more sort of uh like character 
exposition. They move the ball forward quite a ways in this episode. Yeah, it's kind of like, it feels like the most happened since Ed Kemper was around in the, the earlier episodes because um, it, it, he was so spectacular to watch that you kind of get with, you get Kemper withdrawal right after that <laughs> as you're watching the other episodes. Kemper withdrawal. I'm going to yeah. write Ed Kemper a letter and tell him you said that. Well, I mean... He'd probably write me back. I mean, I, I should say... You know, I mean, you got to give credit where credit's due, as we did before. It's more like maybe it's Cameron Britton withdrawal yeah, because yeah, he, he's maybe mostly credit gets the credit. Although you can watch interviews with Kemper on YouTube. There's actually multiple uh, videos showing interviews with Kemper. <laughs> as, as are, uh, pretty good to see. As we've said many times, you can watch anything on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we wrap there? Yep. All right, so up next, Season 1, Episode 7. We will see you all there. Uh, don't forget to give us uh, good reviews on iTunes. And uh, is the email mindhuntercompanion at gmail.com? Yeah, mindhunter.companion at gmail. Mindhunter.companion at gmail.com. Email us with comments or questions, and we'll give you a shout-out on air. <laughs>